Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Mr. Daniel Weintraub. Veteran California journalist Daniel Weintraub is director and editor of HealthyCal.org, an independent, nonprofit journalism project that covers health, public health, and community health issues in California. Previously, for more than 20 years, he covered the state capitol and California for the LA Times, the Orange County Register, the Sacramento Bee, and the New York Times. Please give a warm welcome to Daniel Weintraub. Thank you. Thank you for coming tonight. I think we're going to have a, a, a dynamite program. We've got some great uh, guests here, and we're looking forward to hearing from all of you, both your questions and your thoughts on this uh, important topic. Um, I want to introduce uh, the panel and just say a few words, and then we're going to jump right into our uh, conversation. Uh, on my immediate right is uh, Eleanor Hinton Hoyt. She has been president and CEO of the Black Women's Health Imperative since 2007. She's the executive producer and host of the Imperative's monthly blog talk radio show. She serves as a member of the White House Council on Women and Girls Domestic Violence Workgroup and is on the boards of the National Council of Women's Organizations and Health First of American Charities. She's also the author of The Black Women's Health Guide, Eleanor Hinton Hoyt. In the middle, we have uh, Leticia Marquez Magana. Sorry about that. And she is the Health uh, Equity Institute Professor of Biology at San Francisco State University. In 2005, uh, Leticia developed and taught a course titled Health Disparities in Cancer, which ought to qualify her to say a few words tonight. And that compelled her transition from working on uh, genetics into cancer disparities research. She strives to utilize her training in basic science to benefit transdisciplinary research aimed at reducing health disparities. Leticia. And our third guest tonight is Mignon Guy. Uh, Mignon is a research associate at the Mayo Clinic, Arizona, and an assistant research scientist in the Center for Health Outcomes and Pharmacoeconomic Research at the University of Arizona. Her research is aimed at understanding the relationship between ethnic identity, culture, and health, understanding the social determinants of health inequity, and improving access to and utilization of healthcare services for underserved populations. As uh, Dulce said, um, I'm a journalist, and I've um, worked in newspapers in California for about 25 years before starting a website called healthycal.org uh, that focuses on health, uh, health policy, public health, community health, um, and health care. Um, and one of the major themes of our uh, website is that health care is really the end of a continuum uh, that, um, and, and, and a relatively small part, in fact, of a continuum that really is or ought to be more about health than health care. Um, my first funding came from the California Endowment Foundation, and there's an executive there who's fond of saying, if you tell me your zip code, I can tell you how long you'll live. Um, and unfortunately, that's uh, all too true, that research shows where you live, if it doesn't determine how long you're going to live, it certainly will tell us how long you uh, are likely to live on average. That, there's a um, correlation there um, and probably a causation also. And uh, that's one of the things we want to talk about tonight. 
African-Americans in California, as elsewhere, um, die more from cancer than uh, whites do and, and other uh, ethnic groups. Um, white or African-American men, I think, are twice as likely to die of prostate cancer than white men. And uh, while white women are diagnosed more often with breast cancer, African-American women are 40% more likely to die of it. And uh, a lot of people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out why this is so. And that's what we want to talk about uh, tonight, see uh, what people think, why it's happening, and uh, what, if anything, can be done about it. So we're going to throw that open to the topic for conversation. And we're going to start on the far end with Mignon. <laughs> have you warmed up yet? <laughs> Yeah. Um, and I'm just going to throw that broad question, just your first thoughts on this topic. Why do you think African-Americans are more likely to die of cancer than uh, other folks? You know, I had a feeling you were going to ask this. <laughs> well. <laughs> and I was thinking in my head on the plane over here and in the car, and, and since I received the invite to uh, be on this panel, that... I, could, I can give you a million reasons of what the evidence points to or what the evidence might support, but the fact is we don't know. I mean, I can tell you. It's just a fact. We don't know. There are multiple factors that certainly contribute to um, a higher incidence and in, morbidity and mortality for African Americans in can, with, with cancer. But there are a couple of things that, that, that I want to do, I want to set the tone for first, because when we talk about cancer, we're talking about multiple cancers. So what, there's, there's a few things that we need to do in terms of educating the general public that, and, and I'm not really sure how best to do this, and maybe, maybe you may be a better person to do this than I am, but we need, to, we need to be cognizant of the fact that when we're talking about cancer, we're talking about multiple cancers, not just sort of one. Um, if, if you ask me of where I think the literature is going or where the evidence is going um, as a whole, but perhaps science hasn't actively integrated it, I think that, there are, that the vast majority of factors that are contributing to high morbidity and mortality rates of, African, or of cancer in African Americans are, are social factors. And, and ew, someone's going to come at me for saying this because I don't even think it's all behavioral all the time. You know, we really want to take an easy out and make it a behavioral issue. Smoking, of course, we know it's bad. Diet and physical activity, we know that there are issues there. But even when you start controlling for those multiple factors, and even when all, you know, all things being equal, you still have a higher incidence, and mm -hmm. you still have a higher prevalence, and you still have a higher mortality rate. And so why do you think that might be so? I, <laughs> Some ideas. What I, kinds I, of factors? Could okay, it be? so I'll tell you. I'll tell you where I think this is not my area of research, but I think that they're onto something. How's that? Um, I think that those individuals that are able to connect the social and environmental to the biological, as we were speaking about um, earlier, um, how the lived experiences and the history of African Americans actually can get under your skin. Mm -hmm. I think that that's where that's when we're going to start figuring out where the higher predisposition for not just cancer but other chronic diseases within African-American populations are. That's Leticia, really what I Leticia, think Leticia, you teach a course in um, cancer and disparities. You have a background in genetics. Um, is there research yet that shows that sort of these social and environmental factors can actually change people's <laughs> DNA? Uh, or do you think that... Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, so uh, I don't know if you've heard of epigenetic regulation. 
but basically this is, uh, uh, the idea is that we've always thought that uh, the four nucleotides in, in DNA, GATC, that that code somehow uh, was the only way that DNA processed information. But as it turns out, the DNA is packaged with a number of other proteins and uh, modif other modifications, decorations, a bunch of decorations across the DNA that, decide, that uh, basically renders the DNA transcribable, readable, or not. And so what happens with the epigenetic regulations is it can silence genes or it can turn them on. And we now know that that uh, epigenetic regulation is controlled by social factors. And, and how does that work? Give us an example. So the best example is with mice. Um, that's where they, you know, and so the thing is, is you can have two uh, little mice that came from the exact same mom, and you feed one uh, a diet that has more methylation factors in it. Uh, so well, they're chemicals that actually decorate the DNA when they eat it. Anyway, so this little mouse will stay the same color and stay small. His uh, exact uh, genetic, well, it's, yeah, they're the same litter mates. They're very genetically uh, similar. Uh, this one will get really big and actually have reddish-brown hair just because of the, the, the methylation of the DNA. So um, that's actually feeding something to the mouse. Could but, you do the same thing by flashing a light in its face 24 hours a day or putting it under stress? or Allostatic you know, load, higher just, cortisol levels, shortened telomeres and telomerase? So the telomeres, yeah, that's, that, that also... That's, so, for example, um, at the ends of chromosomes, there are these uh, nucleotides that protect the chromosomes so that they can actually divide um, accurately. And so if you look at Tibetan monks, for example, they have really long telomeres. Um, if you look at the studies are like single African-American moms, they have really short telomeres. Now, those telomeres have been described as being like the uh, caps on the end of a shoelace that keep it from unraveling. Right, and, and what happens... And if you have a really short one, you're more likely to unravel, unravel the DNA and then... That produces what um, sort Mutations. of premature aging? It can premature aging and cancer. Exactly. And so, yeah. So, so what happens is that um, actually telomerase and telomeres are all they're all related in the whole process of cancer because cancer is required. You have to have faithful replication of the DNA, and so the predominant model for cancer is that you have genes and you have mutations and then you get cancer. Um, that's you know so that's why people really want to hearken on the genes. But the reason that you get mutations in the genes. Uh, is not necessarily because of heredity. In fact, I heard Mary Claire King, um, who's a premier geneticist, say, people want to always pin it on the genes, but it's not really clear what genes you get from your parents because there's a lot of recrossing uh, re over and recombination and this sort of thing. What is clear in this country is that money is inherited. Yeah, that's clear. <laughs> the genes you get, that's not so clear, but the, but the money is inherited. So when, you know, I think the biggest reason that African-Americans die the most, a big reason, is that in this country, you know, white family makes eight times more than a black family. That's just yeah. the way it is. And it's based on this, you know, the historical and the social structures and all that sort of thing. And so we know very much that, um, that access to health, but it's more than that. You know, it's right. access to the social networks. It's access to transportation. It's access to someone taking care of your kids so you can go to the chemotherapy. It's a lot of other things. Get into more of that. Can I add on one more thing? Sure. Because there's a great, there's really great research coming out of University of Michigan. Arlene Geronimus has got her theory on weathering, which I'm sure that I don't know if the audience is familiar with or, or um, if you're familiar with. But um, basically, and this is what it gets to. She she talks about she looks at sort of the everyday lived experiences, which which is what I was saying to encapsulate this. Um, and she's one of the few people that I think has been able to get federal funding 
to be able to connect all of these social factors to the biological level work. She's partnering with someone from MIT and looking at this, this weathering, it's called weathering effect. So she's looking at how, she's looking at African-Americans that are living in Detroit. Um, everyday experience is not necessarily low income, but the vast majority of them are. Um, and determining how stress is impacting them at the biological level. So looking at allostatic loads, higher, higher levels of stress, higher um, allostatic loads, higher levels of circulating cortisol, and then, and then going on into the, to the whole RNA and DNA part. So and, and really good work coming out of And also is the cumulative uh -huh. effect. The cumulative you effect, know, exactly. That you're, you're just badgered continuously, day after day, with uh, stress, with, uh, with uh, abuse, with harassment, with violence, uh, with the environment, uh, that you don't get a break. And so the weathering is through the course of your life. Lifetime, right. And particularly for black women. Exactly. So if these cancer disparities are caused by our uh, sort of social environment, should we be focusing more on that than we are on actual uh, treatment and health? Uh, everybody's talking about Obamacare. We're going to give access to, to insurance to everyone. We're not even sure we're going to give access to care, but we're going to give access to insurance. Is that really going to move the needle on this, or is it so deep that we have to get into the kind of social structure of our society in order to make significant change? Well, I think there's two things. One, uh, this is a, we have a healthcare system that is based on a medical model. So we cannot deny that it's not patient-centered and it is not respectful of the in individual. We also have to be aware that we are more concerned about care and treatment, and we spend trillions of dollars on care, treatment, new drugs, and we spend less, and we don't have prevention as the model. And so that is what we do know. So when the health for black women, uh, uh, I see it as particularly cancer, uh, I see it as uh, uh, the intersection of the politics of being black and female colliding with the cultural of a sick healthcare system. And, and there is no way to survive that in addition to everything else, the environment, the, the social dynamics, the fact that there is uh, a $1 wealth factor for black women or the fact that the, the medium income for black women in this country is 26,000. What's the $1 wealth factor? The $1 wealth factor is that that's what we are worth. That's our wealth. wealth. Uh, that it, and compare it to uh, maybe thirty thousand or fifty thousand that our income, our debt exceeds our income or our savings. And so, when you think about being bombarded with all of the stressors, living in an environment and the politics of 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 being black and female, and the politics now of healthcare. Obamacare, and I say that lovingly, is about prevention. Right. Uh, uh, we have, for the first time, I do believe, 
uh, a sense of achieving some kind of health equity uh, if we can get people to understand what the benefits are and what, what we all have. So, Mignon, is this a health problem or a social problem? I'm sorry, can you clarify is what you mean the, by understanding Are these health? cancer disparities more of a health problem? I mean, they, they manifest themselves as health problems, but is it, is it really something that medical doctors can solve, or is it something that we have to solve as a society that I think goes it's gonna, to... I think it's going to be both. I think it's going to be both. Um, and I think that the, the research needs to move more in that direction. We have to have more interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary research that are looking at these multi-level factors, which we're, we're doing slowly but surely, we're doing that, and, and figuring out how to sort of weed through it in that way. I don't think it's a either or, I think it's a both and. And I also, I agree with Eleanor in terms of prevention, um, but as scientists, I, I'm, I'm probably the most critical person of science out there, and I'm a scientist, okay, so, but, but I think as Whistle scientists, water. we need to develop better interventions for prevention. I take issue with an awful lot of, a lot of um, interventions out there, and I take issue with the perceived efficacy of them. Give us an example. I, I'm not convinced that, that, so for example, thank you for asking me that. Yes. No, you can't ask me <laughs> that. <laughs> so, so I think that, so, so here's a good one. This is, this is going to be a controversial one as good. well, but, so we don't really know the, 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 clear link, you know, I really hate to say this because I don't want someone to not um, follow these guidelines because of the fact that I'm saying it's just among we don't us know if here. there's a clean amongst just friends. Just amongst ourselves. Right. <laughs> um, so, so in terms of cancer, we don't know what the real clear link between diet and physical activity and cancer really are. We don't right. really definitively know no, this, right? No. But we're telling people Oh, well, you have to, I'm not saying you shouldn't improve your diet. Because there's too many other confounding factors. Exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. so, so I think we just really need to hone in on what we are doing with prevention in terms of our science. That's, that's, that's all I'm saying. Can and so, you describe a preventive approach generally or specific that you think is uh, effective or has the potential to be more effective? Yeah. HPV. There. Vaccination. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the. I that's mean, the easiest. Survey, that's, that's the, the biggest easiest hit. one. That's the cervical biggest cancer. Hit. So that's is the, preventable. The biggest yeah. hit. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah. Biggest bang for, for your buck. It can be for sixteen of the yeah for most of the strains. The thing is, is uh, hey, so you said how can Obamacare help? That was the beginning of this whole thing. So, um, I think that one of the things, in addition to providing access, is it's going to actually create a bigger market, and so and there's going to have to be cost savings. So knowing the way, you know, America functions, <laughs> when it becomes a business model kind of thing, and now there's, you know, they're going to have to figure out how to make it cheaper. And the way to make it cheaper is to keep people out of the hospitals. So they're going to have to focus on the other part. And, you know, as I was telling you back in the room, you know, I travel to Cuba, you know, and in Cuba, they focus on prevention because they don't have the resources to hospitalize and do all that. So they spend about $571 per person, and we spend over 7000 and they're ranked, like, I think, 32nd in the world in terms of outcomes, and we're ranked, like, 76th or something like that. So I, I, don't quote me on the numbers, but that's the, the differences. And so we spend much more, and we have worse outcomes. And I think that once we go to more of this system, we're gonna, one of the things that's going to happen is we're going to have to figure out how to make it cheaper, and that's to really focus on prevention. Right now, it's the perverse incentive. 
right? You only make money if you do the treatments and the diagnosis and all that kind of thing. So that's not going to happen, hopefully. Um, we'll see. And then the other thing that's going to happen is there's going to require a bigger workforce. And so we're going to have to figure out how do I do our medical school, school admissions better so that we actually get those physicians that are going to better serve these communities. And so, for example, I've actually said, let's get rid of the MCAT and have be a second language or that's individuals. That's the medical school. That's uh, the medical school entrance exam that has been shown with data to not correlate with uh, success in being a physician. Just like the SAT and the GRE <laughs> and every other standardized exam, right? right. Yeah. And to be uh, uh, a source of stereotype threat in a way that whites and Asians do better and blacks and Latinos do worse. I mean, it, they're, they're, we have the data to show all this, and yet we keep sticking with these standardized tests. And so I think we need to be smarter about who we're admitting to medical school. So for example, in the Cuban system, who they admit is those individuals who are absolutely committed and who come from poor communities. Because they know that if they came from a poor community, they're going to likely go back to a poor community. So think of that model. We could just try it out for a while, see <laughs> what kind of physicians we get. And if it works, let's just keep that model. Certainly, the MCAT model is working for some populations, but not for others. What other um, prevention strategies, specific prevention strategies, do we know of that are effective? Can I speak to prevention for, mm -hmm. for just one second? Because even with, with Obamacare, or, or whatever we're going to call it, um, I'm not convinced that we have a lot of incentive. Our, mo our medical model, we, pharmaceutical in industries make a lot of money off of people's being sick and keeping people sick. I'm sorry. You know, and, and insurers and PBMs make a lot of money. So we're talking about huge lobbyists. I'm not saying that we shouldn't push prevention, but what I'm saying is, is that we, this will require more than four people sitting on a stage or another paper that I write. This is going to require communities becoming heavily engaged and heavily involved and being at the table and pushing forward for what they think is best for their communities. At, at the policy level, mm -hmm. because, because I'm, hearing, I'm hearing what you're saying, and I love your world, and then I step outside, and it's just, it's not, yeah. I, don't, I don't know how feasible this really is, because these are huge political powers and huge political forces that we're talking about. And, 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 like and, 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 and sorry, one more thing, sorry, <laughs> because, because the problem is, is that, and when we're talking about policy, everyone wants a short-term hit, they want to see it, they want to see sort of a quick and dirty, they want to see what they can get for in, in the short run, right? Prevention is about long-term, and that's a long-term investment, and that's not the way we function here. We want everything quick, we want it fast, we want it cheap. That's not how we function. So how do we make that massive paradigm shift to really begin to implement what is now accessible to us in terms of through Obamacare? This is, there's, there's some bigger issues at hand that I'm thinking about that can Potentially sure, and part of the, the shift is moving from that medical model. Right. See, I'm not sure physicians would be the key uh, because you have nurses and PAs, you know, and so we and family need, and family, yeah, and so we need to stop putting the physician at the uh, at the top of the pile. You know, maybe they're not the answer. And if we shift from the medical model to the patient-centered model, if we uh, invest in the infrastructure in communities and, and build up uh, our community health centers and, 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 and bring people from the community into the pipeline uh, that healthcare professional 
uh, pipeline, um, that's part of that shift, right. uh, and it is long-term. We're, we're hearing a lot more these days about this patient-centered model. Right. Um, one of you explain what we mean by that. Um, that how I feel and what I do and what I say would be acknowledged, respected. In a doctor's uh, office? In a doctor's <laughs> office. I know, that's so foreign, you know? But also, I think the eight essential health benefits for women that came into effect in August is also a beginning. Uh, that's that breastfeeding, the violence counseling, the well woman care, uh, the gestational diabetes, all of that is patient-centered uh, contraceptive coverage, uh, acknowledging uh, one of the, I know we're talking about cancer, but I'm from the Black Women's Health Imperative, so. <laughs> Uh, and one of the things that we have to begin understanding and accept that we are sexual beings and that women spend most of their lives trying to either prevent pregnancy or get pregnant or figure out how to parent and parent well or how, how to have a good pregnancy. And the point of that is that women go to the medical center get health care more than men, mm -hmm. generally, because that's who we are. We need to begin to understand and interact with women differently in the healthcare system. And I think that the, the medical, the culture of the medical system has, has um, masked some dis the discrimination, the bias, and the neglect of caring for women and treating women with respect, and that's part of the problem. I have a, a big, I think that's absolutely right. It has to be more patient-centered, it has to be more community-oriented. And I think that, um, I think that you know, a lot of my comments are informed from, again, traveling to Cuba. And so one of the things that they did is they actually broke the island up into um, catchment areas. So every little neighborhood has its own clinic. Every neighborhood has its own clinic. That clinic is staffed 24-7 by a doctor and a nurse that live in that community. So when they how big of a community are you talking about? So it's about uh, it's about fifteen hundred people. Okay. So so when we go there, they say, well, of course your doctors live in your community. Uh, of course they don't. No, <laughs> it's not if you're in an under underserved community. And then we're like, then how can they know what they're dealing with on a daily basis? And I'm like, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Yeah. So and and you know those doctors are they 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 birth the kid they birth, they they know and you know it's the kind of thing is. You know, your daughter didn't get her pap smear. You need to go tell your daughter to go, you know. <laughs> and you know, and if you have trouble bringing her, I'll walk, I'll go walk over for you, you know. I'm, busy, I'm not busy right now, you know. We'll go. It's, it's that kind of in the neighborhood. And so when you talk about prevention, I think for many of us, even if you have, and this is true for me, even if you have insurance, you have a car, you have, it's hard for me to get to the doctor. One it takes forever to make the door an appointment. <laughs> and, and then... I work at a hospital and I can't even get it. <laughs> and, and then it goes back and forth because then my schedule changes and I have to, you know, and, and anyway, so long story short, it, it takes forever and then I don't feel like I'm listened to. And, and uh, in those situations, uh, people are like, well, yeah, I felt sick. I walked down the street, you know, this person they've known for years. They don't have to start from the beginning. They can continue the conversation. And I think that for many of us, starting the conversation with a new person each time is <laughs> just really hard, especially when they don't remember, even if it's the same person, they can't remember what you talked about last time. 
So I think that prevention would go a long way with having a place, a community health clinic in each neighborhood with people from that community mm -hmm. staffing it and setting the agenda. And people, I think that would do a long... So we're going to have to have some really great cost-effectiveness models around all of this. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because, but I mean, because if, in, in fact, yeah. if we can actually reduce our costs because we're improving our outcomes right. based on this model, and if somehow we can replicate it in the states, because I don't know how that would happen, but if we could, maybe, maybe you actually could, but if you could, then, then I could see the replica, you know, them, them trying to, the generalizability and, and trying to replicate well, the The biggest thing is country. medical school, there's free. So we'd have to make medical school free here. <laughs> I mean, because the, the, the kids come out with $200,000. This one's trying to change the world, right, in a day. Right? <laughs> I keep telling you, you're like. <laughs> well, but you know, it could happen. Um, well, um, as far as those community <laughs> clinics, I don't know if you're familiar with Alameda County is talking about um, putting yeah. clinics and fire stations right. in every neighborhood. They went right. to Cuba, and, and the guy came right. back, and that's right. what he did. Right. Yeah. So um, yeah. that would. Um, yeah. be a step in that direction of exactly. having it in a place that everybody's familiar with and everybody can walk into. Well, what but, they also talked about those firefighters is that they have connections with the kids, especially. Right. Uh, Trusting. Yeah. They, yeah, they're very, for what, I didn't know this, but firemen in communities are very trusted by the kids. I, and doctors aren't. I didn't say that, but. <laughs> <laughs> I did. Yeah, there's, there's two things that I want to make sure that, that I'm hoping that we make sure that we address because I'm, I'm looking at a gender imbalance on, on this panel and, and, and one thing is the issue of, of health within African American men um, because there's a huge, I, I understand that, that, that we've got the women's health imperative but there's a huge need and a huge gap in terms of research and, um, and actually it's giving me goosebumps to think about it quite frankly because I think that, you know, I just, I, I'm thinking about sort of vanishing African-American males, you know, just disappearing from the face of the planet because the health is so poor. And, and we don't have any research on, on, we don't have enough. There's quite a bit of resources that they're trying to fund right now, but, but we can't speak to the health of African-American men nearly well enough as we should be able to. But the thing I wanted to address with the patient-centered outcomes, one of the things that, that is working in our favor in terms of moving in that direction is that um, with, the, with the Affordable Care Act, there was a mandate of, of PCORI, the PCORI Institute, so the Patient Center Outcome Research Institute, whereby they are actually redefining what patient-centered health means and what patient-centered outcomes mean. And they know that patients need to be stakeholders at the table. And so any person in this audience, I don't care if you're a researcher, I don't care if you're, you know, if you're a healthcare consumer in any capacity, you have the opportunity to actually become a stakeholder and become engaged in the discourse and help define what kind of questions they ask and help shape what is patient-centered health and patient-centered outcomes and patient-centered health mean. So that's, and, but that's a responsibility of all of us as consumers of health. And one of the things that we need to think about ourselves of, as, which I think is community of colors and Afri African-Americans in, in, in particular or, or along with others, we don't, we don't see ourselves as consumers of healthcare. And I, so we have to shift that a little bit more as well, that paradigm. So, sorry, because I'm, I'm hearing things and so I just, I make notes in my head, but but we need to come back to the issue of African-American men's health in particular because there's not nearly enough research being done. And perhaps, once again, there can be some sort of grassroots movement or some sort of community movement that actually requires that, that this happen. And, and once again, it's about community members becoming engaged and saying, hey, look, what about us? We need you to look at us too. Um, Zocalo published a piece in connection with this event 
by, I, I think it was by an MD who talked about in some African-American communities or among some individuals, um, even when they have access to cancer treatment, they're reluctant to take advantage of it for one reason or another. Is that uh, an old wives' tale, or is that something that's actually documented, it exists? Do any of you have personal experience with it? Talking about views about surgery, potentially spreading the cancer, and these kinds of things, um, making people reluctant to um, take advantage of, of modern treatments? Well, uh, I'm from the South, and I'm probably the one who's most chronologically gifted <laughs> in this room. <laughs> and, and, and so it is, it is not just a wives' tale. It is the lived experience of the big C. Uh, I, the whispers and the silence and the masking of the fear and the mistrust and the unknown. It's the mistrust. Uh, and all of that. Uh, it is fear. Uh, uh, I, uh, we have 160,000 folks in our database, and so I travel all over the country. I speak with all groups, professionals, community women, and men, and children, and teenagers, and it is always that um, distrust um, the fear, and, and every time someone gets up and says, I tell that doctor I'm going to take that medicine, and he must be crazy. I'm going to take his medicine. And they mean it. And, and this is often coming from women of means or families of means who have access to resources. And I think it's historical I think it's cultural, I think it's embedded, I think it's fear, but it is so real. And the thing is, is it's, it's really a two-edged sword. So the thing is, is there was an, uh, a publication by Corby Smith around 20, 20, uh, 2012, where they actually asked whites and blacks, um, do you uh, think that you'll be a guinea pig when you go see the doctor, or something like that? And blacks were like 67%, I agree. 60, you know, oh, that's, that's a lot. And the whites were uh, dramatically, I think it was like in the 40s, early. You know, I teach this, so I can't remember right now because it's one of the questions on my exam. But so the thing is, is there, there's a difference in perception. But on top of that, if then you look, quant you know, if you look at what physicians prescribe for blacks versus whites with the exact same cancer. Absolutely. Right. Okay, if you look at that, there's, there's a difference in the standard. So the, the, in general, the whites will get the standard of care and the blacks will get something reduced from there. And if you follow up from the, with the physicians, what they'll say, well, I'm not giving them the standard of care because it requires this many visits, and it requires, you know, it's much more rigorous. And so they have this perception that this individual will follow, you know, maybe from their own experiences, I'm not sure what, because you were just saying that, no, you know, but anyway. No, it's unequal treatment. I mean, it's I actually, it, it's absolutely, it's <laughs> actually, It's absolutely unequal treatment, but when you talk to the physicians themselves, they're thinking that, well, you know, if I prescribe this treatment, then I'll get a better compliance. And if I could, I don't agree. I'm not, but I'm not saying they're not evil. They're not evil people. They they're, are. Yes, they, are. <laughs> they are. They are. Well, okay. So, so the thing for me is like, no, I'm just a scientist. guided. They're just misguided. Oh, that's all. Okay. Okay. So the thing for me is if you, you know, I'm a scientist, if it's the same thing, you treat them the same. 
That makes sense to me. And, you, and if they don't comply, they don't comply. But that's, that's you know, standard care. And if you care. don't treat them the same, how would you describe that person who's doing that treatment? Well, of course they're biased, and of course they have their race. I mean, they're racist. Everybody's racist. But <laughs> what I'm saying is or that... Biased. Or biased. Not biased. Biased. Racist. Yeah. Well, in that case, it's racism, right? Because it's white, mm -hmm. black, and white. Well, not necessarily. Okay. I mean, it could be... It could, no, I'm just... In fairness, in fairness, it, it may not necessarily be racism. It may be just implicit bias. We know that... We know that people have a tendency to project certain stereotypes and they're operationalizing those stereotypes, but that's not racism necessarily. I, I'm, no, I'm okay. very careful no, you're about good using the word yeah, race okay. and racism. Just I mean, you, know, you were going to say something about this question, though. Well, because, because I was thinking about the Corbett Smith, the, the, the um, mistrust, the scale of mistrust, and, and there's, there's something about... I'm, I'm, I, try, I try to be very cautious and, and mindful about citing research especially research about African-Americans or black populations, number one. And, and, and because half the time, I'm not sure who we're talking about. We speak as if African-Americans and or black populations are a monolithic group, and we're not. Yeah. Um, and so we need to be mindful of that. The other thing that I have a problem with, with, with in, in particular with, with health sciences research and with, with, um, with biomedical research, is that a lot of these studies are done in predominantly black areas or, or you know, urban areas. And there are geographical differences in behaviors and patterns. And so one of the things that we need to, if I see one more study that comes out and says that African-Americans are not compliant in medications and they're all done in the South, and I'm looking and they're more compliant in California because of general, it, it, then somehow our information is not accurate. So we need, to, we need to start disaggregating in a better way. I, I, it's science. We need to be better at what we're doing. We're not, but, but we don't have the right people at the table asking the right questions. You know, Lovell Jones, no, it wasn't Lovell Jones. It was Rick Kittles. It was Rick Kittles that said, you know, I won't study any, any blacks west of the Mississippi because they're, some, they're different. <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? They're different. <laughs> this guy's a geneticist. What are you talking about? They're different because they're different. They just have different, you know, culture. They have different... And I, and I started to think about that. And I started to process it more. And then I started to look at all of these studies about, in particular, that yeah. were about compliance because I was in pharmacoeconomics at the time. And they were all done in the South. And I was thinking, wait a minute, but the patterns on the West Coast are very, very different. And, this, and, and perhaps some of it may have to do with their cultural enclaves or their ethnic enclaves are different. In, in, or cultural practices are different on the West Coast than they are in the South because the, the, the history of the South is very strong. Um, so I just think that we need to, as scientists, start thinking outside of the box, and, and it's kind of away, moving away from that population sciences approach kind of thing, but we need to start thinking outside of the box and start disaggregating, um, stop, stop, stop presenting African Americans or black populations as, as a monolithic group, and start to look at geographic differences, and yeah. start to look at other, and, and differences within group um, by SES as well. And, and, we, and we, know we know that place that matters, but we right. also, scientists need to ask different kinds of questions oh, I, of the data. I agree. Uh, that is necessary. I'm right there. So, so the thing that I saw most recently, because you said what are the you know, possible, we started this whole conversation with disparities, and I agree there are prevention disparities, so the, the fact that certain populations live in areas that have more environmental toxins, more air pollutants, you know, less access to you know, great food and that sort of thing. Okay, that's, you know. But the thing that's really interesting to me is the treatment disparities. Right. So the thing is, is you get, once you get into the medical yeah. system, it should be the same, but I just said that they, pres you know, they, they prescribed or deal, treat the cancers differently. Um, 
The other thing that happens is that um, individuals who live in poor areas tend to go to hospitals or community clinics or where uh, they end up getting their surgeries, that sort of thing, where maybe it's the first time they're doing that surgery in, you know, since mm-hmm. two months ago. Whereas if you live in a more affluent area and you have better insurance and that sort of thing, you know, like I live near UCSF, <laughs> those surgeons do those, surger- those surgeries like three a day. Right. So if, if you think about, you know, you're getting a tumor removed, where are you going to get a better outcome? With a surgeon who does it every other month or with someone who does it, you know, three a day, right? So that kind of thing plays into it. Um, and again, that has to do with not necessarily access, because they both have access, but just the, the type of access. Okay. I think we're ready to throw this open to the uh, audience. Michael D. McCarty. How to get black men, one, to go to the doctor, because I just had a friend, went to the doctor too late at his girlfriend's assistance and died a few months from a cancer that was preventable. And two, how to get, well, again, black men in particular, to do the necessary things in terms of prevention, in terms of diet and, and things of that nature, other than having a magic wand and make it happen. I have some colleagues at the University of Chicago and Northwestern University that are doing some really great work um, and it's escaping me, it's the Brotherhood Project, Project Brotherhood. Um, that's, there's some really good models yeah. that, that, that people are beginning Detroit. to implement around the country that are using, using black men to engage black men at the community level. So they're basically changing the discourse and changing the culture within themselves and working with researchers and, and clinicians um, to do this type of work. I think that's really the best way, or, Sorry, because that's not, that's not a scientifically valid thing to say. I think that that could be a very effective way. Um, I think that engaging our boys earlier on into these conversations and into this discourse and be, making it normalized is a great way. Any, any sort of place where we have a community center or nexus um, to, and a place that can disseminate information and engage us in ways that, that perhaps we haven't before. I think that those are the best ways, but we haven't begun to explore them. That's what I'm saying. I was, I've been looking at, it, they're called RFAs, but I've been looking at a research funding announcement for since 2009 on, on health promotion of ethnic and uh, racial and ethnic minority men, trying to promote health within those populations. I haven't seen a lot of grants come out of that because people just aren't looking at it enough yet. So, but it's, it's growing and it's building but again, I think it's going to have to happen. Researchers are going to have to partner with community members. And we're going to have to figure out what works best and what's most effective. I think it's going to begin at the community. I don't, I don't yeah. see it happening anywhere else other than in, at the community level, community-based organizations, uh, men's organizations, um, uh, churches, uh, in schools. And right. I know the project you're talking about where the men themselves said this is unacceptable. Uh, we have to do something, and so break down that um, that distrust, but also just the neglect that we have for ourselves. Uh, we just heard someone who say that she didn't couldn't take the time to go to the doctor. Well, um, and that's you on have TV to, now. <laughs> <laughs> you have to put your health first, and so we need to normalize being well. 
Uh, and we need to stop talking about disparities and dying and talk more about achieving health equity. That's what I was going to say is that um, I had a wonderful conversation I was telling you before with um, Kevin Washington, who's in our Africana Studies at San Francisco State, and he teaches black health psychology. And one of the things he said is that one of the, he felt that a lot of people were reluctant, black men were reluctant to engage in health-seeking behaviors because it's always framed from a, you're, you have a problem. Problem. You know, you're mm -hmm. sick, you guys die the most, you know, yeah. all that kind of thing, instead of, you're, you know, African-American men are strong, you know. They're, We're still here. They're, yeah, they're, 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 <laughs> you know, they're. too precious to lose. Yeah, and you're, you're you know, if you're, yeah, you, you survive so much, you're survivors, <laughs> that, you know, therefore you need to, you know, keep that going and then do these health-seeking, you know, so from a positive, resilient angle as opposed to a, deficit, you it's know. It's like message framing. It's a message framing. Yeah. And, and the other thing that he, that he really agreed with, and this is what we do in San Francisco, is through the, use the uh, faith-based communities and the health ministers. I mean, there are actual, I didn't know this, there are health ministers in many of these faith-based communities. I, I mean, in my religion, we don't have health, health priests. <laughs> <laughs> we, but health ministers, what an amazing idea, because it's about the spiritual and the physical. My name is Jorge Rivas, and uh, my family's from El Salvador. There is no, there's never been cancer in my family. Um, and in 2008, I was diagnosed with brain cancer. Oh my gosh. And I know that there's research that says that first generation immigrants and second generation immigrants in the United States have higher incidences of cancer. And I'm curious to know um, if there's any data on that with black immigrants and, and their um, experience with the medical system. Mm. No. So here's, none that I'm aware of. I would strongly doubt it because that would require disaggregating black populations and stop looking at them as one monolithic group, which we don't do well. So um, I, when in graduate school, that I did do work looking at African-Americans and sub-Saharan Africans that were African immigrants in the US, um, which people thought I was crazy because my God, they're all the same, right? But, but I think that, um, we would have to do, there, there's, there's one group, I believe, at the University of Michigan, but they're not looking at cancer specifically, um, that, are, that are starting to disaggregate. Actually, Rick Kittle's group does it with genetics. They're starting to disaggregate because he looks at sort of the diaspora. But I don't know of anyone that's doing specifically what you're asking offhand, or, and, or a large And I, I think that um, <clears throat> the University of Chicago, a, mm -hmm. a breast surgeon, a breast researcher there, is looking at uh, breast cancer. Uh, Nigerian women and, and African-American women in Chicago. But is she looking at immigrant status, though? Because he's asking specifically yes, about immigrant status. Uh, so Africans generations of Africans? Certainly mm -hmm. there's been research in other um, ethnic groups, right? Where the, I mean, Asian-Americans and others, Latinos. I think, Latinos, where I think it's been shown or suspected that there's a big change in the diet between the former countries. Yeah, it's more than that, but also what's basically has been shown is that you're healthier where you were than when you got here. Right. You know, once you get here, you have the worst health outcomes. Right. But that's been shown. That's coming from like John Ogbu and the Berkeley sort of voluntary versus involuntary minority status. So obviously people are healthier and they fare better initially and then the longer we live here, you know, for a variety of reasons. But, but once again, I don't, I don't think that anyone's looking at several generations yeah. of, of, of black immigrants. They're looking at, that, at African-Americans versus you know, Afro-Caribbeans or African-Americans versus African or 
but they're not looking at, they're, they, they're not even looking, thank you for a great research question. <laughs> you may have funded my next yeah. study. <laughs> um, but they're not looking at these several generations down the road, and that perhaps that's something that needs to happen. Ken Murray is my name. Uh, I'm a family <laughs> physician. Uh, first, I want to say I, I virtually agree with everything that has been said tonight. Um, uh, second, uh, that I think this conversation is way overdue. Uh, and I'm, I'm really pleased to see the innovative thinking that's, uh, that's occurring here. Um, one slight thing I want to give a little pushback on in terms of addressing the complexity of the issue is that um, there are a lot of physicians who do really try to um, take into account um, cultural issues. Uh, I think they're critically important. And I think um, several of you mentioned um, how uh, people's viewpoints, uh, cultural viewpoints about treatment and so forth, color what they desire to do. And physicians increasingly uh, try to take these into account and, and, if you will, negotiate what happens. The problem that occurs is let's say you take someone and the, the state of the art for treatment of, let's say, brain cancer uh, is using radiation therapy on their head uh, five times a week for a month. And, and because you have a good relationship with somebody, they say, I'm not going to do that. That, you know, you're blasting me with radiation. No way. And, and so you negotiate, you know, what is acceptable to them, which is best you can, is doing the best care that you can possibly do for them, that they're willing to actually do. The problem is that when our research colleagues then start to research what's done, uh, what they find is, aha, we've given substandard care to this patient. And the next thing I know, I'm being typified as being evil. Um, and yet, what I've actually done is try to, <laughs> to engage the patient in what their actual desires are. Uh, so that's, that's that comment. The one other comment I wanted to make and throw out to you is that there's been a real shift in medical education, uh, in, my, in my opinion, in, in a very good way, that we have far more women physicians now. In my uh, medical school, Davis, 60% of the current class are women. Um, and it's my own opinion that I think women do a better job. <laughs> but I'm curious what you think this shift may have to do with the impact of medical care on underserved communities. Thank you. Can I follow up on one thing that you said? And I'm, I'm slightly digressing because I would be completely remiss and, it, and it's, it would be a very big mistake not to have this discussion, but you triggered it when you started talking about therapeutic treatment and the provision of care and whether or not what's, you know, you know I started thinking about what's effective and not effective. There's a huge part of the, one of the, the major contributing factors to health disparities in, in my eyes for African-Americans, cancer disparities, is the, the lack of participation in clinical trials. Yeah. We don't exist in clinical trials. This is a problem. I don't know, and, and it's a problem, and unfortunately it's a problem for the clinicians because you're only given the evidence that you have and we can't really find a great effect because we've got so few African-Americans in studies anyhow. And why is that? Oh, that's a, that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not just, no, it's not mistrust. It's a, that's gone. That's gone. That's, Tuskegee is gone. It's yeah. gone. The not, research, not for my students. The research shows that the, the most, research, the, the most, most current evidence, national data, 
show that the reason why African Americans are not included in clinical trials is because the clinicians are not asking them to be involved, because they still have guilt from Tuskegee. So the participants, yeah. black participants, are saying, yes, we will be involved, but the clinicians that normally refer, and I'm not coming off on you, sir, but that will normally refer to the trials, they're the ones that are thinking, well, I'm not going to ask them because they're not going to be involved anyhow because we did have the cultural mistrust. So we've moved on. And, but we're, we just get stuck in these little boxes. We have to have African-American representation in clinical trials. I don't know anybody in their right mind that would want to, I mean, would you buy a shoe if you knew it was two sizes too big or two sizes too small, right? No. So why would you choose, why would you want a treatment that may not fit you or may not work best for you? We have to be engaged in clinical trials. I'm not saying you just you know, throw your blind faith into every single scientist and study and, and go full force. I'm, I'm saying you gotta do your homework, you need to feel comfortable with the studies that you're involved in, but we have to be in these studies because we absolutely are not represented at all and we don't know what works best for those people. So what I was gonna say is that you know, in my health disparities in cancer class, one of the things we do at the beginning of the class is ask them if they would donate uh, a biospecimen tissue, oh, blood, whatever. Yeah, yeah, anyway, anyway. <laughs> so, so the thing is, is we start, and then we do the whole class, and the thing that's really interesting is I have years of, I haven't published any of this, the African-American students don't change their position. They don't want to do it at the beginning, and they don't want to do it at do the it. end. Everybody else wants to increase. And I'm like, wow, there's something there. So that's why I said there's still issues of mistrust. Bi well, biospecimen is different. Okay. Biospecimens are very different than we're talking about other clinical, clinical trials. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, it's, it's I mean, a more... I, I don't know that I would... I don't know that I would donate my bile specimens either. See, so. okay, but, but getting back to what you were saying about women uh, as, as physicians, um, if they were women from poor communities, I, I don't know so much that it's the gender thing as much as the, you know, who you came from thing. So, because if you look at the data on medical students and if they come from poor communities, they're the ones that are more likely to go back to the poor communities. And so I think that that's, that's what we need to change in, in terms of that. With respect to the clinical trials, I think you're absolutely right. And that was what I was supposed to say because I'm the biological science, the biomedical scientist. Um, but the thing that is really interesting, for example, have you guys heard of triple negative breast cancer? Some people have. So that, yeah, so yeah. You, okay, so you know that triple negative breast cancer is not, uh, there's no th targeted therapy for it because it doesn't have any other reason. So why, why did we miss this cancer for all these years? I think it's because there was not there were not African-Americans in those clinical trials at the beginning when we were looking at the biology of breast cancer because it's very prevalent in African-Americans and actually in Latinas who have a heavy African ancestry if you're from the East Coast. So, right. Denise Nichols. And um, I just want to say that I'm very happy that you're doing this forum. And um, I kind of think about, you know, how it took different technologies, when they reach critical mass, then more and more people become aware of it and be involved, okay? And I'm saying that in, in reference to, back in the 90s, I went to, um, well, I, I'm a radiation therapist. So I've been in the field of cancer for 38 years. Yeah. And um, I worked at University of Chicago, and I worked in New York, and I like work out here now. But what I, I went to a, um, a conference in D.C., and I believe it was the late 90s or the early 2000s, and it was the sixth conference on cancer, minorities, and the medically underserved. And they talked about all these different things that you're addressing now. But it's like, it's not something new, and we all, you know, want to be more aware of it. But what I do see and what I feel hopeful about is that now people are becoming more and more aware. And, we're, and, and what really does need to happen is it does need to be the one-to-one -one dialogue, and that's what's going to push it for 
forward more so. And I know that I've been really engaged with people when they were talking about Obamacare because it is about prevention. And one of the things I know too, um, at one hospital I worked at, I was on the ethics committee, and um, one of the things that we know is that there was, there's like 80% of the money in medicine right now is spent in the last maybe year of a person's right. life, and sometimes right. it's even in the last mm -hmm. month, right. when all these tests that are ordered and everything, and hardly anything in prevention. So prevention definitely is the key. But the other thing that I, um, I want to address in my observations, so it's no research, and right now I'm trying to think of where do I want to put all my energies next, because there's only so long you can do certain things, you know? But it's... Um, that cancer is really a disease of the emotions, and that's what I would like you to think about um, and see what you've observed about it. Because in cases like, for example, women with breast cancer, where do women uh, metaphorically store things? It's in their bosoms. And I've noticed with all the patients that I've talked to through the years, is that when people hold things in and they don't get it out, it's got to manifest somehow. And this weathering that you were talking about, all of that goes together. And every time, all, every one of those women, even if they didn't fit the model at first, there was something really deep that they never expressed and that they um, eventually mm -hmm. it manifested that way. So that, those are just some of the things that you know, I was And see, thinking. from a biological perspective, I can you know, come up with some ideas as to why that might be. And in fact, I have heard the same thing from breast cancer patients, that they feel it's emotional trauma. Okay, so breast cancer, for example, it has to have, the, the, the actions on the DNA that would affect your breast getting cancerous would have to happen when those cells are dividing, and that's either in utero, in puberty, or when you're pregnant. And, and a lot of those were people of abuse or trauma. Yeah, a lot of right. those patients were physically, mentally, sexually abused when they were young, or or they were very young and they went through some extreme trauma. And a lot of the women were like, went through really bad divorces or whatever it was when they were younger. But well, so the thing is, is so it's those developmental time windows. But on top of that, um, what, uh, you know, is, I was talking about the epigenetic regulation. So if, if, you're, if there's a lineage of historical trauma, you know, your mom was abused, you know, I can see how, there's no data to support this, but I can see how you could potentially have modifications of your DNA that would be passed on, but then in utero, in puberty, and during pregnancy, if things happen, for example, that would increase your cortisol levels and yeah. decrease your immune response. So your immune response is responsible for surveilling for cancer. So that's why many of us don't get it. I mean, things go awry, but your, your immune system <coughs> just gets rid of it. But you know that the first thing that happens when you're super stressed out is that you get sick and your immune system goes down. So it's all tied together. It's the whole neuroendocrine thing. I would highly suggest that you look at some of the work by Sarah Gellert. It's G-E-H-L-E-R-T. Because she talks about historical trauma and, and she links it to health disparities and to cancer health disparities and to, to um, black populations. She's from, I think, um, I, I always get them confused. I think she's from St. Louis University or Washington, WashU. But Sarah Gellert, I think that you'd find her her her, her research is, is really interesting, and it's it's getting along the lines of what you're what you're getting at as well. Yes, my name is Jacqueline Alikani, and uh, first of all, I just want to thank you for doing this dialogue and uh, analysis. I wish there could be more of these throughout the community. It's really important and really helpful. Um, I'm a heart survivor, and um, I have lost several members. <clears throat> of my family to cancer, pancreas cancer, ovarian cancer, prostate cancer. So, um, I mean, as a patient, I, I myself 
was diagnosed with a rare uh, cardiovascular condition that my doctor said. It's been found in like one in 17 million people. They usually find it during the autopsy. I was misdiagnosed for 48 years. Um, nobody listened to me. And if I hadn't watched someone almost die from a heart attack, I wouldn't have the, the courage to, to realize, to, you know, to stick up for myself mm -hmm. the next time I went to ER. And I, um, you know, then I learned what the symptoms were. And I learned that all this time I've been having all these symptoms and just no one's really taking me seriously. Like they don't take a lot of women very seriously when it comes to heart disease and a lot of different things. Um, and um, that I went to ER the next, next time I had symptoms and I had to really just say, I'm not leaving. They said, there's nothing wrong with you. You can go home. You know, it's just your imagination. And I said, I'm not going to leave because it just, you know, I'm just going to stay in here. It just feels real safe and I don't want to go through what I just witnessed. And um, that's how I finally got diagnosed. And it wow. turns out you know, they said, well, what do you want us to do? And I said, well, you know, can you take a picture or something? Or can you look in there and see what it looks like? I don't know. I'm not a doctor. And um, they said, well, there is one more test you can have that might help. But um, we don't have the equipment here. And, um, you know, we'll give you a prescription. And I took that. And that's how they, they found out. But, you know, I just think that uh, if there's a way for us, now that I'm with the American Heart Association, Nas National Patient Advocate Foundation, and I've learned a lot more, but um, if it weren't for my experiences, I wouldn't be here, right. probably. Right. So how do we get, there are a lot of resources out there. There are a lot of great um, things that already exist in the community to help people. And we just need to get more people informed about them, first of all, so they can start taking advantage of them and also learning the symptoms of a lot of these diseases so that when you go to the doctor and just have the courage to say, you know, no, I'm not feeling right. You've got to listen to me. Someone needs to listen to me. And um, how do you get re-engineer a lot of the resources we have to help people better? Well, it's interesting because I also was misdiagnosed with the, I'm teaching health disparities and cancer, and I get misdiagnosed for my heart problem for uh, 18 months. But anyway, so I hear a lot of what you're saying. I think the biggest reason that I was misdiagnosed is that um, when I went to the doctor, which was at a center for women's health excellence, it was a different doctor each time, a different nurse practitioner. And so um, when I, you know, they didn't see the difference. Does that make sense? So, you know, I'm saying I'm tired, and they're like, well, she's probably always tired. You know, <laughs> I mean, you know, oh, I'm not, I'm shortness of breath. And they're like, oh, you know, she probably always has shortness of breath. And so the thing is, it's seeing the difference. And so, again, going back to the Cuban model, these people are the doctor for this person for their whole life. And so when they see them, they're like, oh, you're different. You know, this is a snapshot that, you know, here, it's a snapshot. And so they're looking at the data. For me, they missed it because I was the wrong age and you know, all this other stuff. I wasn't presenting classically, that sort of thing. But if someone had been watching me the whole time, you could see me just go down. And then they, you know, they would have picked it up, I think. So I think part of it is just having this continuity with, with whoever's seeing you so that they can see that there's something up. Your skin color's a little different, you know, whatever. And let me just say, to, to speak to your question, and, and congratulations yeah. uh, for it takes courage. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I'm glad you had that courage. But it also takes people like you to be those 
uh, champions. And so, and I think that's what it's going to take. Uh, seeing you tell your story, your story is very important. It's, it could be empowering for other uh, women and also to make sure that people know that they can be the champion for good health. I mean, and that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to normalize being healthy, that it's not just eating right or, or uh, uh, our physical exercise or smiling or laughing. It is all of it. It is where you live and how you can support each other, being socially well as well as physically well. So congratulations and keep up the good work. Thank you, Thank you so much.